Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. This year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine has been awarded today to two scientists. Their work led to the development of two of the most important COVID-19 vaccines. NPR's Rob Stein has our story. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden awarded this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine to Hungarian-born biochemist Katalin Karako and American immunologist Drew Weissman. The Nobel was for their work together at the University of Pennsylvania that the assembly says laid the foundation for the development of the mRNA vaccines against COVID. The vaccines have been administered to more than 13 billion people and are estimated to have saved millions of lives during the pandemic. Rob Stein, NPR News. Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates says he will use a procedural tool this week to try to force House Speaker Kevin McCarthy out of the Speaker's chair. Gates says McCarthy broke promises to hardline House Republicans when McCarthy sought help from Democrats over the weekend to pass a short-term spending bill. The legislation averted a partial federal government shutdown. Meanwhile, New York Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman says he mistakenly triggered a fire alarm Saturday as the House was preparing to vote on the short-term spending bill. But as NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, Republicans say Bowman should be punished for his actions. Bowman says he activated the fire alarm by accident while he was rushing to get to the vote. In a statement later, the New York Democrat said he was embarrassed by the incident. Now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the Ethics Committee should investigate what happened, and he suggested Bowman may have triggered the fire alarm on purpose to delay the vote, something Bowman denies. The spending bill was passed by both the House and the Senate before being signed by President Biden, averting a government shutdown. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court opens a new term today. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports the justices have a docket full of hot-button issues. Many of the most controversial issues before the court come from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is at odds not just with the Biden administration, but with other circuit courts on a variety of issues. The Fifth Circuit, for instance, ruled unconstitutional a federal law that bans the possession of guns for anyone who's the subject of a domestic violence restraining order. The circuit court also sought to reinstate restrictions on access to the abortion pill, restrictions that the FDA had lifted in 2021. And the circuit invalidated the funding mechanism that Congress set up for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now all those cases are in front of the Supreme Court. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are mixed. This is NPR I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Congressman Stephen Lynch says the state's entire all-Democratic congressional delegation will fight to secure funding for Ukraine. Republicans took financial support for Ukraine out of the bill, which averted a government shutdown this weekend. Lynch says all nine members of the state's delegation voted for the bill. There were a significant number of Republicans who actually voted for Uh, the bill yesterday, and that gives me hope. And there's an opportunity to form a coalition between those those Republicans. The 45-day funding extension will keep the government running through mid-November. 
A former Saugus selectman faces a year and a half in prison for stealing more than a million dollars from a local education nonprofit. Mark Mitchell pleaded guilty and was sentenced last week. The Suffolk District Attorney says he stole the money from the Boston Center for Adult Education while he was the organization's comptroller. Red Sox fans and players are remembering pitcher Tim Wakefield. He died yesterday of brain cancer at the age of 57. WBUR's Anthony Brooks tells us that Wakefield played 17 seasons in Boston. Tim Wakefield was drafted by the Pirates as a home run hitting college player, but in the minor leagues he became a pitcher, mastered the knuckleball, and learned to make a baseball float and dance while making major league sluggers look stupid. When he retired in 2012, he told WBUR about his first game as a Red Sox player at Fenway Park. When I finally got a chance and first stepped foot through that tunnel under the dugout steps and saw the green monster, I knew, you know, this is like uh, a dream come true, and I knew this is where I wanted to finish my career. He won 186 games for the Sox, second most in team history, and played a key role in the team's historic 2004 World Series win. Tim Wakefield also won the Roberto Clemente Award for his charitable work. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products. Located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com and La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. The New England Patriots lost to the Cowboys 38-3 yesterday in Dallas. The Pats' record is now 1-3. They'll host the New Orleans Saints next weekend. The Red Sox ended their season with a 6-1 win over the Orioles in Baltimore. And tonight, the Bruins visit the Philadelphia Flyers for an exhibition game. Sunny today, although we could see some more haze from wildfire smoke. It'll be in the lower 70s, clear overnight and in the 50s, sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 80s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition on WBUR, where we're in our fall fundraiser. As a listener, you are always an an important part of what we do here at WBUR. This is when we remind you that you actually make what you hear every morning possible. Because as you just heard from Meghna, everything you hear every morning is free. And that's important. That means anyone can access our responsible, factual journalism, even if that if they can't pay. And that's so important right now. But that only happens with your support if you're in a place to contribute. People who listen like you make up the largest share of our funding. Funding This fundraiser, we want to bring on 2,500 new members to our community of listeners who give monthly to support WBUR. Monthly support helps us plan in an increasingly uncertain environment. 
we're trying to sustain our newsroom as other news outlets dwindle and collapse. The number is 1-800-909-9287 to make sure that doesn't happen to WBUR, or you can go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy, and in the studio with me is Jay Clayton. And Rupa and I did not show up empty-handed this morning. When you start your monthly gift, we would love to thank you with our brand-new WBUR baseball T-shirt. You can check that out at our website. It's our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month, and that will go a long way over time when you keep giving that gift automatically. That will help fuel our journalism for you and for everyone who depends on WBUR in Boston and beyond Boston. You can get that T-shirt as our thanks for $12 a month today. Tomorrow, it goes back to $20 a month. So you save a little, you invest a little, you do so much good with that modest investment. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. Or you can get in on all of this at WBUR.org. The news we bring you every day, it's expensive. It comes at a huge and constant expense that is increasing because, as you know, everything, the cost of everything is increasing. We are very aware of that here. We are planning for it. Part of our goal is to create a long-term sustainable funding model to protect our journalism that we bring you every single morning. I asked our CEO, Margaret Lowe, about how she plans to do that. Well, one of the ways it happens, um, and the best thing that listeners can do is actually become a sustaining member, meaning you give every month automatically. And it makes life a lot easier, really, because you don't have to consider each and every time whether or how much you want to give. And it creates more economic certainty for WBUR, knowing that we have your enduring support. And I hope we do, because we will always be here for you our listeners, and we hope that you will continue to be here for us. That is a great explanation of why giving monthly matters straight from the mouth of our CEO. So you know that this is leadership from the top. We are thinking about how to be there for you in the future. So we are asking you to be part of the solution. The solution is you. The number is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Be one of the 25 500 new monthly contributors we need to bring on this this fundraising uh, fundraiser so we can continue to bring you the news and to plan for the future and to make sure that we are reliably there for you every morning and we need you to be there for us. $12 a month if you can give that to WBUR right now as an ongoing contribution each month or maybe increase your monthly gift if you're already giving that way. Increase to $12 a month. You can pick up the new baseball shirt for WBUR as our thanks. The great thing about this shirt, it, it looks cool, of course, but the great thing is you will feel so good wearing this shirt because it just will speak to your values, your values in believing that we need to stand up for truth and for facts. And that's what you do when you support WBUR. Just go to WBUR.org and give $12 a month. Tomorrow it goes back to 20 You can also do this on the phone at 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Coming up, we take note of the replacement for a lost treasure, a tribute to Black Hollywood that's been missing for half a century. But first, the last-minute deal in Congress that prevented a government shutdown also halted new U.S. aid and support of Ukraine's fight against Russia. One of the lawmakers who voted yes on the stopgap spending bill was Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He joins us now by phone. Senator, what do you see as the immediate impact of putting a pause on USA to Ukraine? Well, perhaps the most immediate impact is that it signals both to Ukraine, uh, but also to Europe, that there is no longer certainty that the United States is going to authorize funding necessary to keep Ukraine in this war. Uh, Overall, the United States has spent about $70 billion to support Ukraine, but our European and global partners have actually spent more, about $80 to $90 billion. And we need them to stay in this fight, but they're only going to uh, continue that supply line if they know the United States is committed as well. Uh, So I think everyone is scratching their heads right now, waiting for uh, Congress to um, make this decision in in the next 45 days as to whether we're going to continue to support Ukraine. I I hope and expect we will make that decision, but it may cause some confusion uh, and perhaps blunt some momentum in Europe and across the world as they continue their work to authorize weapons to Ukraine, humanitarian support for Ukraine. And that has real consequences. Are you worried that this somehow emboldens Russia? I think Putin has already made the decision that he can outlast Ukraine and the West. Uh, I I think certainly Putin at this point has decided that he's going to wait and that he's going to keep this war going until after the 2020 for election. And the reason for that is that he sees the Republican Party beginning to consolidate around a position that would abandon Ukraine. And he figures that if he just holds out until that election, he has a chance uh, for the Republicans to win control of the White House and Congress, uh, walk away from Ukraine, and then the Russian army marches on Kiev. Uh, so I don't think the Republican Party has made that decision. Uh, and our job now is to try to support those in the Republican Party that still support Ukraine uh, and ultimately show Russia and the world with a bipartisan vote in the next 30 to 45 days uh, that we still have a consensus position in the United States to make sure that the post-World War II order remains, which is really what we're fighting for here. This isn't just about Ukraine. This is about sending messages to countries like China that if they invade Taiwan, there will be consequences for that as well. But uh, the Uh, The lid comes off of that post-World War II order if we abandon Ukraine in the next year or two. So on that, uh, Senator, because say there's someone in the U.S. struggling to make ends meet, and they ask you, why is it worth to send it more money to Ukraine? What's your answer to them? Well, first, we have benefited from a global order in which big countries don't invade small countries. The relative stability that we have seen, especially in Europe, which is our main trading partner, has grown jobs in the United States. Um, The United States remains 25 percent of global GDP, uh, in part because of that stability. And if you start to see massive big state conflicts all around the world, that hurts the United States' ability to export. But second, Putin won't stop if he wins control of Ukraine. Uh, He will move next, I believe, on a NATO country, countries that we have treaty obligations with. And so that would mean the United States will be directly at war with Russia. That will mean that U.S. troops will be in Europe fighting 
and dying. And so, you know, I, I don't think that the domino theory applies in uh, every uh, case of international conflict. But in this case, I think Putin is enough of a madman that ultimately the United States gets dragged into war. And this is a very affordable investment. Ukraine's not asking for U.S. troops to fight and die for them. They are asking for funding that amounts to a sliver of our overall national security budget. It's a wise, preventative investment. But President Biden has said that as long as Russia is invading Ukraine, that funding from the U.S. will continue as long as he's president. Um, uh, Is there any merit, though, from Republicans when they argue that current levels of funding are simply unsustainable or that they just can't go on endlessly? Well, first of all, what's interesting is that That's a position held by uh, the minority of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. So Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has said over and over on the record that he supports funding for Ukraine. They had a vote in the House of Representatives last week that showed that there is um, less than half of the Republican caucus that opposes funding. So if you took a vote today in the House and the Senate, uh, 75% of both bodies would support funding. Um, But as but as to the question of, sustain, of sustainability, um, if we show that we are behind Ukraine and not backing down, I think that does have the ability ultimately to bring Putin to the negotiating table, get a political settlement. This is not an investment that we're going to need to make for the next 10 to 20 years like Afghanistan. This is something that I think can have a political settlement. That's Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator, thanks. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump will appear in a New York courtroom today as his legal troubles enter the next phase. Trump faces a civil trial brought on by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who is demanding that the former president and his company pay the state $250 million. Already, New York Judge Arthur Ngoron has found that Donald Trump and his two sons committed persistent fraud and ordered them to start taking steps to sell off large pieces of their company. NPR's Andrea Bernstein is at the courthouse in Lower Manhattan, and she joins us now. Hi, Andrea. Good morning. Good morning. So explain what's at issue here, what the judge already found. So last Tuesday, surprising, so far as I can tell, almost everyone, Judge Ngoron issued a ruling that when you read it, you can practically see the steam rising. He said, based on paperwork alone, all of the defendants committed persistent and repeated fraud by lying about their property values. Mm. For example, Donald Trump lied about the size of his own triplex apartment at Trump Tower. He said it was three times as big as it actually is, worth several hundred million dollars more. Mm. And with Mar-a-Lago, the judge said Trump lied by 2,300% about the value. At one point, the judge likened Donald Trump to Chico Marx in the 1930s classic movie Duck Soup, who said, well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Mm, 2,300 percent, quite a lot. The judge has moved to cancel the Trump company's business certificates. What does that mean? So in New York, the law is clear. If you commit persistent and repeated fraud, you can't do business. So now there's a process which begins with the cancellation of the business certificates. The idea is that Trump would have to sell some of his most iconic pieces of his business, Trump Tower, golf courses, commercial buildings. The process will move in parallel with the trial. Trump has appealed, but so far New York courts are allowing both the trial and the cancellation of the business certificates to move forward. I guess what I'm confused about is if all of this is already happening, why is there even a trial? 
So the judge's ruling was only for the first cause of action. There are six more. Mm -hmm. They have to do with drawing up false documents, conspiracy, and lying to insurance companies. On top of that, the AG has to present evidence supporting her claim that Trump's company made $250 million in extra profits from these fraudulent representations. Now, Trump's team has argued no one was hurt, that he made money, banks made money, all good. Mm. But the judge said that's irrelevant. You're not allowed to lie or commit fraud. The judge called Trump's defense, quote, legally preposterous. And so what do we expect today? So there'll be opening statements by Assistant Attorney General, Trump's lawyer, and possibly lawyers for Don Jr. and Eric Trump, who are also defendants here. The first witness is Trump's former outside accountant, Donald Bender, from the firm Mazars. Bender knows a lot, so that should be interesting. Alan Weisselberg and Michael Cohen, two former executives, uh, are expected this week. And then later in the trial, Donald Trump, Eric, Don Jr., and Ivanka Trump are all on the witness list. We're not sure how long it'll go, but one guess is that it will conclude before Thanksgiving. And Trump's there today. Will he be back tomorrow? As with everything involving a former and would-be president going on trial, it's uncharted. We'll know when we know. Andrea Bernstein, thanks so much. Thank you. Decades after it went missing, Hattie McDaniel's Academy Award is replaced. McDaniel was awarded Best Supporting Actress in 1940 for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind. No use to try to sweet talk me, Miss Scarlett. I knows you ever since I put the first pair of diapers on you. I said I was going to land with you and going I is. She was the first black person to be awarded an Oscar. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. Following McDaniel's death in 1952, her Oscar was donated to Howard University. But 20 years later, it went missing. Last night, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences gave Howard a replacement. Here's the dean of the Chadwick A. Bozeman College of Fine Arts, Felicia Rashad. Today we celebrate not only the restoration of this treasure, but the power of intention. But the milestone Oscar win was not universally celebrated. The director of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, Jacqueline Stewart, noted that last night. The audience reception of the film ranged from high praise for her performance to sharp criticism for taking a role in a film that romanticizes periods of slavery and reconstruction from a white supremacist point of view. With that role, however, a daughter of formerly enslaved Americans broke a Hollywood color barrier. It would be half a century before another black actress would follow her. In 1990, Whoopi Goldberg took home the Oscar for her supporting role in Ghost. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. 
Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. This is Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi back with you as part of our fundraiser. I'm joined here by Jay Clayton. And as you heard there from Deepa, this is a really challenging environment for media, and we need your help to keep this work going. And we just got some really exciting news. We now have a triple match on the table. Some members of our Murrow Society have stepped up to say they will triple whatever you give and triple your impact, but only until 7.30 this morning. And that's coming up really fast. So think about what we bring you every day, how much you depend on it every morning, and be one of the 2,500 new monthly contributors we're trying to bring on this fundraiser. You will be the steady source of support that helps WBUR plan for the future. And when you give now, you will have triple the impact for WBUR. Triple matches are super rare, but you have to act really fast to get in on it. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And here's Jay. I love, Rupa, something you said when we had one of these matches a few days ago. I mean, imagine that you've got a $20 bill in your wallet, right? It's sitting there in your wallet. And then suddenly you look again And it's tripled to $60, right? And then imagine that that keeps happening month after month after month for a whole year. That is the impact that you can have by giving that $20 a month to WBUR right now. Or you can give $25 or $30 a month if you can do it. Any monthly gift that you give between now and 730, just about five minutes from now – will be tripled for a year thanks to some members of WBUR's Morrow Society. That is a powerful way to protect and strengthen our journalism here at WBUR. So get in on the monthly match right now. It's a triple monthly match at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. WBUR welcomes the conversation. There's always room for everyone to have a voice, whether it's a college student or an expert in the field. There's equal value given to everyone's opinion. There's definitely a community of listeners and people who I respect and admire and like to talk to. Very often things will come up about, you know, did you hear about so-and-so on BUR this morning? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about this story? Did you hear that interview? So it is a common connecting point. I feel like I am part of a larger community. I've never met these other people, but I feel like I'm connected with them, like we're aligned with a common purpose. We all want a thoughtful, deep, examined way of living. I really believe in the mission of WBUR and the strength that is created when we all give our own little part. Strengthen your community. Give monthly at WBUR.org. 
You have a little bit less than three minutes now to get in on this triple match. We need you to act fast. Think about what you get from WBUR every morning. High-quality news that is factual, in the necessary context, weighed against our journalism ethics. That level of quality is really important to me and everyone who works here. It's why we work here, but it takes money to make it happen and to make sure it keeps happening in the future. We will be grateful for whatever you can give, even small amounts. Amounts have a big impact for WBUR, especially when you give right now and get in on this triple match. You will have triple the impact for WBUR. That means if you give $10 a month, WBUR gets $30 a month. Give $15 a month and the triple match will turn it into $45 a month. Give $100 a month and it becomes $300 a month for WBUR. That's huge and it's rare. Again, triple matches do not happen often. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. There's now about a minute left on this triple match for your monthly gift, not just matching it this month, but every single month for a year. Where else can you get that? You support something with whatever amount works for you, and and you will be supporting the journalism that you depend on every day, a service that is just such a big and integral part of your life and of this whole community. And that support triples if it's a monthly gift. It triples for an entire year. But this is now your last chance to make that happen. So go to WBUR.org and start your monthly contribution there and get it tripled, WBUR.org, or call this number, 1-800-909-9287. If you already give, thank you so much. We, You make what you hear every day possible, and we are so grateful. If you can, think about maybe adding a few dollars to your monthly contribution. That will be tripled for a year. In other words, it will have triple the impact on WBUR, and you will have even more satisfaction knowing you are doing everything you can to help WBUR. All you have to do is call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. It doesn't take long, and it will have a huge impact on WBUR. We will be so grateful. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with the system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Following passage of that stopgap bill to fund the government through November 17th, the House and Senate are expected to resume negotiations this week over legislation to fund the government for the rest of the fiscal year. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Lawmakers struck an 11th hour compromise this weekend to pass a short-term spending patch, but while the stopgap measure represents a temporary compromise, the two chambers remain deeply divided over spending levels and key provisions of a broader deal. The main sticking point 
points include additional security assistance for Ukraine and measures to strengthen security at the southern border. Former President Donald Trump will be in a New York courtroom today for the start of his civil trial that threatens his family business. New York Attorney General Letitia James accuses Trump of lying on financial statements to get better terms from lenders and insurers. NPR's Andrea Bernstein says the judge in the case has already said Trump committed repeated and persistent fraud. The judge's ruling was only for the first cause of action. There are six more. They have to do with drawing up false documents, conspiracy, and lying to insurance companies. On top of that, the AG has to present evidence supporting her claim that Trump's company made $250 million in extra profits from these fraudulent representations. Trump says he will be in the courtroom to fight for his name and reputation. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Lexington native is one of two winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Drew Weissman got his bachelor's and master's from Brandeis. Then he went to Boston University's medical school. Weissman and Catalina Carrico won the prize this morning for their work that helped develop the COVID vaccine. Both are now professors at the University of Pennsylvania. Massachusetts lawmakers committed a record $325 million to the family shelter system this fiscal year. Governor Healy says that funding will run out in January, and she's asking for more. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel explains what's driving the escalating price tag. This year, the number of families in the state shelter system has more than doubled, and the average stay is about 14 months. The state has run out of shelter units, so it's booking hotel and motel rooms for many families. Doug Howgate of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation says that's fueling the increased spending. The costs don't go down the more families demand the system. The costs actually go up, right? So you end with this escalating factor that further compounds the budget challenge. On average, the state pays $165 a night for each family in a traditional shelter. But an unstaffed hotel or motel room costs twice that on average. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Changes begin today for commuter rail riders. Service between Foxborough and South Station will now be permanently available during the week. MBTA officials say the change comes after a year-long pilot program exceeded its goal for number of riders. There will also be more late-night rail service to help with nightlife in the city. The MBTA also plans to add trains on some lines during peak commuter times. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Australian author Helen Garner with The Children's Bach in conversation with Lily King on October 13th. Details and registration at portersquarebooks.com. The Patriots suffered their worst loss of the Bill Belichick era yesterday. They lost to the Cowboys 38-3 in Dallas. The Pats will return home next week to host the New Orleans Saints. The Red Sox ended their regular season with a 6-1 win over the Orioles in Baltimore. The Celtics acquired guard Drew Holiday yesterday in a trade with the Portland Trailblazers. In exchange, they sent Malcolm Brogdon, Robert Williams, and two future first-round draft picks to Portland. In your forecast, clear skies and highs in the low 70s today. A few clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 55. Warmer tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. It'll be sunny again. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, 
inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Climate change is here, and this week NPR is doing something new. An entire week focused on the search for climate solutions with stories across our network. Julia Simon is the climate solutions reporter on NPR's Climate Desk. She joins us now to explain what this week is all about. Now, Julia, we've just emerged from a really brutal summer, heat waves across the U.S. and across the world. In Maui, there was the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in a century, and then all that terrible flooding that's killed thousands of people. You know, a lot of times I think when I talk to people about climate change, I hear a lot of hopelessness. People think that, hey, we've already lost this. We can't do anything about it. What do you say to that? Things are really bad right now. But what if we reframe the conversation? With climate change, it's actually not like there's this meteor hurtling towards Earth and there's nothing we can do about it. Humans are driving climate change, and that means we can find the solutions to change the trajectory we're on. We actually have many solutions already. Robert Bullard, professor of urban planning at Texas Southern University, equates this moment to when our country faced past injustices. For example, slavery was an evil institution and it needed to be dismantled. I pushed back against any individual or organization that would say, well, we can't do anything about this challenge. We can do something about it. We should not and cannot accept climate change as the norm. All right, Julia. So climate solutions, that's what this week is centered around. How do you define it? Broadly speaking, climate solutions are things that reduce greenhouse gases, renewable energy, solar, wind, batteries, energy efficiency, and the way we use land matters. Are we burning forests, destroying mangroves? Individuals can play a role, too, by eating less meat, for example. But we have to remind folks solutions are not all about individuals. A lot of solutions come down to governments and companies. Okay, governments. Would that be something like when President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act last year? That's really the most significant piece of climate policy in U.S. history. Is that what we're talking about? Right. Governments can really set the agenda for climate policy. We saw this in Brazil. The new president, Lula da Silva, is really cracking down on deforestation in the Amazon. Under his predecessor, Bolsonaro, Brazil's deforestation was surging. So some advocates see voting as a real powerful climate solution. What if though someone's thinking, well, okay, since the planet is already warming, then we need to adapt to that. Is that considered a a climate solution? Yes, we will need to rebuild infrastructure for rising sea levels, new rainfall patterns. Adapting to climate change doesn't mean we're giving up. Adaptation is part of the solution. There's this word, co-benefits, ways that curbing greenhouse gases might actually make life better, too. If we replace coal and gas plants with renewables, we reduce greenhouse gases that warm our planet, and we also end up reducing the air pollution that is bad for our lungs. Disadvantaged communities bear the brunt of that pollution. So reducing fossil fuels would help communities of color. So it sounds like there's an equity component of climate solutions. 
A hundred percent. Climate solutions should not be repeating injustices of the past. As we make more electric vehicle batteries, for example, how do we make sure mining for those resources is done in an ethical way? How do we avoid those mines polluting water or grabbing land from indigenous communities? And we have to remember that some individuals and companies are more responsible for climate change than others. So how do we hold them accountable? This summer in Montana, 16 young plaintiffs won a climate lawsuit arguing against the state's development of fossil fuels, it could have huge implications across the U.S. So accountability can be a climate solution, too. Julia Simon is the climate solution reporter on NPR's Climate Desk. Julia, thanks. Thanks, A. Actors union leaders are heading into talks today with the big Hollywood studios. Their colleagues from the writers union managed to cut a favorable deal with the studios this past week. Now the actors are hoping to do the same as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. But first, a note that some NPR staffers are SAG-AFTRA members, but they're covered under a different contract. Writers are overall delighted with how things turned out in the recent contract negotiations with the studios. Speaking at a rally in New York for the Actors' Union, SAG-AFTRA, a few days ago, Writers Guild East president Lisa Takauchi Cullen told the still-striking performers to expect a similarly positive outcome. I think that we got everything that we, that we really, really wanted. We didn't get everything, and you guys won't either, but I think you're going to get most of it. I really Todd Holmes teaches entertainment media management at California State University, Northridge. The fact that this deal has been reached, I think, really bodes well and certainly moving forward for SAG-AFTRA. He says the actors' union should feel encouraged by the writers' wins, like higher residuals and protections against being replaced by artificial intelligence. This is what you would call pattern bargaining, where usually one deal is worked out with one union, and then when the other union has a lot of very similar things that they've been asking for, then that usually falls in line pretty quickly and agreement is reached. But SAG after strike captain Kate Bond, who's best known for her role in the reboot of the TV series MacGyver, says she isn't so certain about a speedy outcome. A lot of people don't understand how different our demands are from the WGA's demands. Bond says, unlike the writers' union, the WGA, the actors' union represents many types of performers, actors, dancers, stunt people, each with specific needs that need to be addressed. Artificial intelligence, for example, is an especially existential threat for background actors, some of whom say they've already had their bodies scanned for reuse. So, Bond says, negotiations with the Studios Trade Association, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, could take a while. The AMPTP is just going to use every union busting trick that they have. The AMPTP did not respond to NPR's request for comment. Bond says she's grateful for the continued support of writers as the actors continue to struggle. But now that the WGA's members are busy getting back to work, she's not expecting to see so many allies on the picket line in the weeks ahead. It's not that they're not interested, it's that all of a sudden they have a lot to do. Some writers, like Kashini Kashyap, who penned the Netflix series Special, are still planning to show up. Kashyap says her union wouldn't have been able to cut a good deal if it hadn't been for the actors' support. It feels really important to go out there and support them because visibility on the picket line is important to getting the kind of leverage and deal that they should be getting. Kashyap says she plans to join the actors on the picket line in Los Angeles today. She says nothing can happen in Hollywood unless they get back to work. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people, and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is Morning Edition on WBUR, where we're in our fall fundraiser. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here in the studio with Jay Clayton. A few minutes ago, you just heard the first installment in a week-long series we're bringing you about solutions to climate change. And think about it. It can be tough to hear news about climate change. It can sound like all bad news all the time. With this series, we are changing the narrative and focusing on what you can do now to combat climate change. It's just one of the many ways we empower you every morning on WBUR. After that story about climate change, you heard the voice of our host of our daily podcast, The Common, Daryl C. Murphy, explaining how you are responsible for making sure this important service keeps coming to you and everyone in your community on all the platforms available like podcasts. Also online on our app by asking your smart speaker to play WBUR. When you give monthly, you give WBUR reliable support and peace of mind that we'll be able to keep bringing all of that to you every day. This morning, we're asking 2,500 of you who don't already give to WBUR to recognize what you get from us every day and step up and give monthly. That's what we need to do this fundraiser to ensure WBUR's future. So just go to 1-800-CALL-1-800-909-9287. I always do it too fast, so I'll say it again. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And here's Jay. Through the pandemic, many listeners uh, had to pause their giving. Many businesses closed their doors so they couldn't support WBUR the way they had. And, and some have come back, but not everybody. So we're looking at monthly giving as a path forward, a path toward more financial certainty for WBUR. If you can give that way, it'll make a big difference. And we've got for you as our thanks for your contribution, the brand new WBUR baseball shirt. It's a very good looking shirt and it'll feel even better because every time you wear your shirt, you'll know you're standing up, you're doing your part for journalism that is so essential to our daily lives across our community. So tomorrow, that shirt is going to go back to its regular level of $20 a month. But for today only, $12 a month, you get the shirt, you support WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number or WBUR.org. You heard Jay use the key word there of community. We really, a great example of how we really build community absolutely every single day is on Radio Boston, where we follow up on the important, the most important issues that you want to hear about every single day. Tiziana Deering hosts that program, and she talks about the importance of our community a lot. On Radio Boston, we set out to really get to know the people who represent us in Congress. I mean, we know their policies. We know what they're doing in Washington. We know the bills they file. 
But what about why they file those bills or why they even decided to try to serve in the first place? So we set out to do that, and it worked. Take Ed Markey, for example. It turns out that his commitment to climate, it goes all the way back to his childhood and the contamination that he grew up with in Malden. My mother would say to me, Eddie, whatever you do, you're the oldest. Don't swim in the Malden River. We're in Wad 2, where all of the industries are, and we're using the rivers, the ground, the air, as their dumping ground. We learned about Ayanna Presley and how much the death of her mother has moved her. Her mother's death was a transition for her, and her mother's spirit motivates her, and it moves her forward. I told myself that my mother physically was transitioning, and now I would absorb that energy. I would absorb and carry with me the best parts of her. And Seth Moulton, he saw enough death and trauma when he served four tours in Iraq that he actually came home and fought for a mental health hotline. A woman walked up to me and she said, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want you to know that your law saved my daughter's life. And her 12-year-old daughter was standing there next to her. That's why I keep doing this. We tell people stories because we know that when we understand each other, we are stronger as a community. We're asking you to join us in our commitment to our community by making a small monthly commitment to WBUR, maybe $10 a month or $15 a month, whatever you can give. That will help us keep this journalism strong for all of us. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Be one of the 2,500 monthly sustainers we're trying to bring on and ensure WBUR's future. We will be very grateful. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. California Governor Gavin Newsom has tapped a longtime California labor leader and Democratic advisor to replace U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who died Thursday at age 90. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Marisa Lagos reports. LaFonza Butler currently heads the pro-choice Democratic fundraising group Emily's List and has advised Vice President Kamala Harris. She also has close ties to Newsom's inner circle. Butler will become the second open lesbian and third black woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate. In a statement, Newsom praised Butler as an advocate for women and girls and a fighter for working people. He says she represents the best of California and will, quote, carry the baton left by Senator Feinstein. The decision allows Newsom to fulfill a promise he made to appoint a black woman to the seat Feinstein held for more than 30 years. Butler is a Democratic powerhouse who's worked as an advisor to both Harris and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. But much of her career was spent representing in-home caregivers and nursing home workers as head of the largest labor union in the state. 
She told KQED in 2019 that her experience watching her mother take care of her ailing father while working multiple jobs to keep the family afloat pushed her toward that career. So my life was really lived uh, through the eyes of a caregiver. My mother's story really was uh, the precursor to my professional career. Butler was born in Magnolia, Mississippi. She's married with one daughter. The family moved from Los Angeles to work in Washington, D.C. when she took over as Emily's List president in 2021. And she's currently registered to vote in Maryland. Newsom's office said she'll re-register in California, where she still owns a home before she's sworn in. Newsom was under pressure to appoint longtime Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee, one of three California Democratic members of Congress running to replace Feinstein. Newsom said he didn't want to put his thumb on the scale in a race between Lee, Orange County Congresswoman Katie Porter, and Los Angeles Congressman Adam Schiff. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. This is Rupa Shanoi in Boston. The Patriots lost Sunday and dropped to a 1-3 record. Meantime, the Red Sox ended their season in last place for the second straight year. Despite their current struggles, the last 20 years have been a boom time for pro sports in Boston. Local teams have won more than a dozen championships since 2002. As part of WBUR's new field guide to Boston, our ideas and opinion editor Chloe Axelson wrote about what it means to be a sports fan here. She realized it often goes well beyond the scoreboard. There are rites of passage as a Boston sports fan. Fenway Park on a 56-degree day in June watching the Patriots at a dive bar, the electricity of the city on Marathon Monday. I wasn't born loving Boston teams. My dad's from Chicago, and by birthright, I root for the Cubs. But my allegiances switched for good when I moved to Boston for college more than two decades ago. I can now link milestones in my life with Boston games I remember. These memories make me proud of my adopted hometown, and connect me to a younger, different version of myself. I watched the 1999 ALCS with my college roommates in a rickety triple-decker in Somerville. The Yankees smoked the Sox, four games to one. The one-two pitch, wide into the left field corner. They're waiting for it is Spencer, and the Yankees are going back to the World Series to defend their crown. I knew all about poor Bill Buckner, but I think that was my first real heartbreak. In 2002, I lived in New York City. At a bar in the East Village, I watched the Pats play the AFC Divisional Playoff game, the Snow Bowl. I nearly collapsed when Adam Vinatieri kicked that 45-yard field goal through the driving snow. A low line drive kick that had enough to clear the crossbar. Ah, it's only the season. No big deal. What a pressure kick by Adam Vinatieri. And I lost sight of it in the snow, and it just gets over the crossbar. I remember standing at the bar telling anyone who would listen, oh yeah, people are so crazy for the Pats up there. It might have been the first time I thought about making Boston home for good. In 2004, during the Red Sox World Series run, I was working on a political campaign in South Dakota. I worked all the time, so I only caught snippets of the final games against the Yankees. But cheering on Pedro and Poppy helped me stay tethered to home. 
Swing and a ground ball to second base. Pokey Reese has it. He throws to first, and the Red Sox have won the American League tennis. They mob Allen Embry on the mound. The Boston Red Sox have pulled the greatest victory in team history. I remember thinking if the Red Sox could make it, I could too. In October 2013, I was six months pregnant with twins when I scored tickets to Game 6 of the ALCS, Red Sox versus Tigers. I smile every time I see the photo of pre-motherhood me. I had no clue what my life would look like in 10 years. My dad and I were at the TD Garden the night the Celtics retired Kevin Garnett's number. Last not least, man, I want to thank all y'all, man. It's been real, man. I would have never thought y'all loved me like this. I love you, Boston. I love you, Northeast. I love y'all, man. It was the first time since the start of the pandemic that either of us had attended a large public event, and it was epic. There is an impermanence to sports, just as there is in life. Players get traded, luck changes, team dynamics are a complex alchemy that's impossible to replicate. But that constant of change ensures hope at the beginning of every season. I went to that 2013 Sox game with my husband and parents. We didn't know what we were having, boys or girls. But in the eighth inning, when we sang Sweet Caroline, we were unwittingly singing to a kid who turned out to be my own Sweet Caroline. Being a fan in Boston is much more than only a game. Sweet Caroline, never seem so good. Chloe Axelson is the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page. You can check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash field guide. You'll find all sorts of tips. You can also sign up for the Field Guide newsletter that sends them straight to your inbox. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. You're back with the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here this morning with Jay Clayton. We're asking you to think about everything you get from us every day for free, on air, online, in the form of newsletters and podcasts, also editorial pieces like you just heard there from WBUR's Chloe Axelson. We help you keep up to date with what's going on around you and what's important to the people around you. 
All of that can only continue with your support when you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbwark.org right now and give monthly. You will help us toward our goal to bring on 2,500 new monthly contributors, this fundraiser. We appreciate all support, but we're especially grateful for monthly support because it helps us know what we have to work with so we can plan for the future. Monthly contributions give WBUR the security we need to commit to do the reporting you depend on and expect to hear every morning. The number again is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And here's Jay. And when you start your monthly gift right now, take away our new WBUR baseball shirt. That is our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month. You will feel so good wearing it because you'll know that it really speaks to your values of supporting facts and truth and how important those are are in our lives today. Just go to WBUR.org, pick up the shirt as our thanks for your $12 a month contribution. Tomorrow it goes back to 20 so you'll save a little money too. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. NPR News headlines and WBUR headlines are next. Stay with us and thank you for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzi. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump says he will be at the state courthouse today in New York City. He faces civil fraud charges that threaten some of his most iconic assets, including Trump Tower. NPR's Brian Mann reports. Donald Trump and his associates, including his two sons, are accused of systematically overvaluing their properties by more than $2 billion in order to secure financing and make deals. In one case, New York Attorney General Letitia James says they inflated the square footage of a building by 300 percent. Last week, State Judge Arthur Engeron issued a summary judgment finding Trump did violate accounting rules. Engeron described Trump's valuations of his properties in financial statements as fantasy. Trump calls these claims a sham and says they're meant to cripple his presidential campaign. If the fraud charges hold up in court, Trump could lose control of many of his prize assets and be forced to pay a $250 million fine. This civil trial is unrelated to four criminal trials Trump faces in state and federal courts. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. The federal government did not shut down over the weekend after Congress passed a short-term spending bill. The legislation includes billions of dollars for U.S. emergency disaster help, but not a cent for aid to Ukraine. When the bill got to the Senate, Colorado Democratic Senator Michael Bennett held it up for a time until he got a commitment from leadership to debate funding for Ukraine. This is one of those times when we can't afford to have an institutional failure. I think this is beyond politics. You know, if we turn our back on Ukraine, um, we know from President Zelensky that Europe will turn its back on Ukraine and 
they will lose the war. He spoke to NPR's Weekend All Things Considered. Meanwhile, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates is seeking to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Gates says that McCarthy broke his promises to hardline House Republicans by working with Democrats to pass the spending bill. More than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente health care workers across the United States are preparing to go on strike for three days. The walkout would start this Wednesday. As NPR's Danielle Kay reports, their union contract expired over the weekend. These Kaiser workers, whose contract expired on Saturday, include nurses, lab technicians, pharmacists, and many others. They're represented by a coalition of 12 unions that's bargaining with Kaiser, one of the biggest health care providers in the U.S. The unions say Kaiser hasn't offered adequate solutions to end a staffing crisis, which they say is negatively affecting patient care and employees' well-being. Kaiser and the unions say they're willing to keep bargaining to reach a deal on a new contract. But if there's no agreement by Wednesday morning, tens of thousands of workers will walk off the job. Kaiser says hospitals and emergency departments would stay open in the event of a strike. Danielle Kay, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks are mixed in pre-market trading. You're listening to NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. After voting to avert a government shutdown this weekend, Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation is back on Capitol Hill this week fighting for more aid to Ukraine. As WBOR's Walter Wuthman reports, Republican leadership stripped support for Ukraine out of the final funding bill. All nine Massachusetts congressional representatives voted with Republicans on the compromise spending bill. The package funds the government through mid-November. Congressman Stephen Lynch of South Boston says Democrats will now turn their attention to passing more economic and security aid for Ukraine. We do have ample time. We should be able to do it by November 17th, that's for sure. But I'm I'm concerned about the, the process that the Republicans have adopted thus far. A small group of conservative Republicans are trying to cut federal spending and aid to Ukraine and are now threatening House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A former Saugus selectman has pleaded guilty to stealing more than a million dollars from a local education nonprofit. Mark Mitchell faces a year and a half in prison. He'll also be expected to pay restitution. The Suffolk District Attorney says Mitchell stole the money from the Boston Center for Adult Education while working there as comptroller. Remembrances are pouring in for Red Sox pitcher Tim Wakefield. He died yesterday from brain cancer. He was 57. Wakefield pitched 17 seasons for Boston and has the second most wins for a pitcher in team history. On Nesson yesterday, former teammate Kevin Euclid said Wakefield also enjoyed being around other people. He was a great competitor when he took that mound. He was just a great teammate. And uh, just a great friend. And had the luxury to play with him on the field, in the booth. And uh, just, just glad that I had the opportunity over the years to be alongside him. Boston City Hall was lit up in Red Sox colors last night to honor Wakefield. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. 
Learn more at awf.org. The Patriots' record is now 1-3 and three after yesterday's loss in Dallas. The Pats fell to the Cowboys 38-3. The Patriots will be back in Foxborough next Sunday to play the New Orleans Saints. The Red Sox ended their regular season yesterday with a win. They beat the Orioles 6-1 in Baltimore. The baseball playoffs start tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Philadelphia Flyers for an exhibition game. Sunny today, although we could see some more haze from wildfire smoke. It'll be in the lower 70s, clear overnight and in the 50s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 80s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Leslie University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at leslie.edu. And Elliott Community Human Services with two community behavioral health centers open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn. ElliottCHS.org. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Good morning. This is the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. And we have a triple match on the table. That means when you act now, your impact for WBUR will be tripled. And we know you're listening because you care about what's going on in the world. There's a lot. It's tough to keep up with what you need to know, even just about the region or the city. You care about that and you listen to WBUR. You want to know about the upcoming city council elections, efforts to fight the the opioid crisis, our strange shelter system, and you'll hear an update on that later this hour from WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel. Bringing you that, all that news every day is really expensive, but we do it for you every day, and we're grateful to do that. This is when we come back to you to say we need your help to keep all this going. And when you act now, your contribution will be tripled. We're asking 2,500 of you to become new monthly contributors this fundraiser. When you do that now, your contribution will be tripled for a year. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbwar.org and give what you can. I'm in the studio this morning with Jay Clayton. Good morning, Rupa, and good morning to you, and thanks for listening to WBUR. We hope you will take this moment during this triple match to start a monthly gift for WBUR. Those 2,500 monthly gifts that we're looking to uh, build during this fundraiser, collectively that ongoing support will go a long way toward financial certainty for WBUR, and that's what we're really looking at. We want to make sure this service that you count on and that so many other people count on remains strong for many, many, many years to come. And the key to that is monthly support, especially during this match, because your monthly gift right now will be triple matched. $10 a month if you give that becomes $30. a month if you give that becomes $60, not just this month, but every single month for a year. That is powerful impact that you have when you start your monthly gift right now. You've got about five minutes to do this. This is a very quick match, a very powerful match. So take advantage of it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 
to triple match your gift and support a very powerful, meaningful mission. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose. Work we do with you and for you. And we can only do it with your support. So please donate to the station today. All of this work we do every day, everything we bring you every morning, it's for you. And your monthly gift matters because it makes it possible every morning. We often feel like we can't make a difference as individuals about so many things in our world. This is one way you know you can make a difference. You can feel confident about that because you listen every day. You know the strong, consistent journalism we bring you. That happens because of a community of listeners who already gave. All you have to do is join them and make them stronger. And when you join them now, your impact on WBUR will be tripled because there is a triple match on the table. Members of our Murrow Society will give three times whatever you give, but you only have until 815. We need you to act fast. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and take advantage of this triple match. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And if you're already giving monthly, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much. You can help by adding a dollar or two to your monthly gift, and that will get in on the match as well. But again, the match is ending in just about a minute. So get in on it at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. With only hours to spare, Congress averted a government shutdown. Yeah, the deal came together after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy backtracked and decided to work with Democrats to pass a short-term spending measure on Saturday. We're going to be adults in the room, and we're going to keep government open while we solve this problem. But in choosing bipartisanship, McCarthy also put his job at risk. Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates says he plans to introduce a resolution to remove McCarthy as speaker as early as this week. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now to discuss all this. Hi, Sue. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Okay, before we get to the drama surrounding McCarthy's job, could you spell out exactly what Congress agreed to this weekend? Sure. They passed a stopgap spending measure that basically keeps the government on autopilot until November 17th. There was one add-on provision that includes $16 billion in disaster relief aid to assist with things like recovery from the Hawaii fires. Notably, Layla, what it did not include was any aid for Ukraine, despite very strong lobbying from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and obviously President Biden. Mm. The president already said publicly he believes that he has a deal with the speaker to move something separate on Ukraine. 
But just yesterday on CBS, the speaker said that while he might support money for Ukraine, he wanted it tied to some kind of legislation to secure the border. So it's going to be a complicated negotiation. Okay. And as you point out, November 17th, it expires. Is Congress going to be right back at a shutdown standoff? Yeah, I mean, almost certainly. I mean, the thing that's important to remember here is stop gaps are easy. They're mm. the underlying 12 annual spending bills. None of them have been passed by Congress yet. The House and Senate are on completely different pages. If you recall, the speaker walked away from the budget deal that he cut with the president that was signed into law in early June. And the House has been passing bills with very steep cuts to domestic spending that you know, has no chance of survival in the Senate, would never be signed by the president. So how the two chambers reconcile this, I, I can't answer for you. And and neither can anyone on Capitol Hill right now, not just in terms of the spending levels, but Republicans have also put into their bills a number of provisions that they say would remove the quote unquote woke from the government that will also be, um, you know, not going to see the light of day in the Senate. So they have about a month and a half to try to reconcile some of this, but the chances that they're all resolved and they're ready to roll in November seems highly unlikely. And then in the meantime, McCarthy, because he worked on this deal with the Democrats, is facing a possible removal from his speakership. I mean, how realistic is it that he loses his job? You know, it, remember, he wouldn't be in this position if he hadn't negotiated himself into this position again back in January. He had to agree to make it easier to remove the speaker to get the votes he needed from the far right to become speaker. Now it could be used against him. I would say most Republicans still support Kevin McCarthy. They still want him to be speaker. But the political irony here is it now puts a lot of power in Democrats' hands. If all Democrats voted in mass with just, say, five or a few more Republicans, they could remove him from the job. I talked to Democrats all last week about this. They're very wary of um, adding to the chaos on Capitol Hill, but they don't really hold much regard for the speaker, especially as he has started moving forward with an impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden. And the big question is, if McCarthy needs Democrats to remain speaker, what do they want in return? And again, that's going to be a very another very complicated negotiation for the speaker to figure out, and maybe as soon as this week. NPR's political correspondent, Susan Davis, I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again soon. You bet. All right, the time has come for tens of millions of federal student loan borrowers. October marks the first month they'll be required to make loan payments since the pandemic pause began three and a half years ago. This return to repayment has raised questions, though, about the system's ability to handle so many borrowers at once. NPR's Corey Turner is here to explain all this. Corey, let's start with the return to repayment. Uh, what do we know about how it's going? Well, we know there are about 28 million borrowers who are in good standing A and who will be expected to make a payment this month. Uh, there are also another 7 million who are in default, which means they're not in good standing yet, but there is a program to get them there. It's called Fresh Start. It makes getting out of default pretty painless. In fact, uh, I heard from a borrower this weekend I've been working with who just went through it and told me he was really surprised by how easy it was. Mm. It's also worth noting, it looks like a lot of borrowers have already started making payments. Uh, the Treasury Department tracks cash deposits made by all the federal agencies, including the Education Department. And in September A, Ed deposited at least $6.7 billion. Now, not all that money is coming from student loan payments, but a lot of it is. And that's more than three times what the department deposited in July. You have done a lot of reporting about the support system for borrowers and how it's pretty stressed. Uh, have things gotten any better? Not yet. Uh, the handful of student loan servicing companies that manage borrowers' accounts and answer their questions are just flooded with calls. Um, they've been slow to staff up, in part because of education department budget cuts. 
I got access to some internal data that shows exactly what's happening behind the scenes right now. I just want to share a little bit of it, eh? So one day recently, two servicers made borrowers wait on the phone an average of an hour. But I can also tell you, in that same day, servicers had to field nearly 100,000 phone calls. That is an enormous number of phone calls. And as a result, roughly half of those borrowers hung up before they got through. As a result, on Friday, attorneys general from 18 states plus Washington, D.C., sent a letter to President Biden saying, quote, at this critical moment, the Department of Education itself appears to lack sufficient resources to provide needed assistance to borrowers, meaningful oversight of servicers and enforcement of borrower protections. Wow, that's at least annoying to um, almost everyone, I'm sure. What needs to happen though, to make this uh, better for borrowers? Yeah, I mean, more money from Congress would help, but given what Sue just told us, who knows how possible that is. Um, meanwhile, the Education Department is encouraging borrowers to try to answer their questions online first. Um, borrower advocates are quick to blame the servicers, saying they waited too long to staff up and have not been acting in good faith. But if you ask the servicers, they say they're being asked to handle exponentially more borrowers than usual at the same time that the Education Department has cut their funding. The largest service, or Nelnet, told me they are hopeful. They have hundreds of new call center workers now moving through the security clearance process and should be ready soon. Though, obviously, that's cold comfort for all the borrowers I mentioned who called last week and gave up trying to reach a human. You know, the one thing that all sides agree on at this point, at least quietly behind the scenes, is that this has been a struggle, and it is not clear how much longer it will stay a struggle. You can find all of NPR's Corey Turner's recent student loan reporting at npr.org slash student loans. Uh, Corey, thanks. You're welcome, man. Five years ago today, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi was lured to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to have documents signed for a planned marriage. He never came out. Jamal Khashoggi's murder, his martyrdom, lives on. David Ignatius worked with Khashoggi for 15 years before that day. He shared with me memories of a passionate journalist who looked at the world with a twinkle in his eye. And he says Khashoggi would probably be shocked that so little has been done to bring his killers to justice. In a recent column, Ignatius writes that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman seems to understand, quote, the murder of this dissident journalist was wrong even though he still won't take personal responsibility for the operation the CIA says he authorized. To this day, Mohammed bin Salman has not taken responsibility for that. And some of the people who were crucial to that operation remain at liberty, have never been charged. More important, the instruments of repression that led to Jamal Khashoggi's death are still in place. Uh, they're not visible, but... This is as repressive, as potentially dictatorial a regime uh, as it was five years ago. That should concern everybody. It certainly would have shocked Jamal. What's the top thing that still makes you angry or frustrated by all this? So I think any reasonable person has to say that there have been remarkable changes in Saudi Arabia in the five years since Jamal died. Women aren't simply driving, that, that 
began when Jamal was still alive. But they mixed freely uh, in Saudi society with with men. Uh, the hijab is not enforced. The religious police have been disbanded. What bothers me is that those changes have been implemented essentially by force. Religious conservatives who aren't happy, they ended up in prison. I mean, this is a person who is modernizing Saudi Arabia at gunpoint. And the idea that Saudi Arabia might actually normalize relations with Israel, that's amazing. Something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. But I think we should understand that this is a modernizing dictator. If, say, all of this continues, normalizing relations possibly with Israel, Saudi Arabia continuing doing business in the United States, the further we get from that and the more that that happens, do you think or are you concerned that the brutal nature of what happened to him will be somehow forgotten or lessened when history tells it? It won't be forgotten by people who care about the kingdom. Jamal was an example of the process of change that's happening in Saudi Arabia. He was a, a, an avatar, you could say. He had a taste of freedom as a journalist. He wanted more. He encouraged the opening of his kingdom, the change of the, some of these traditional uh, social rules. He wanted, he wanted more. I think it's a mistake to close ourselves off to Saudi Arabia or most places. I think, you know, even the heart most repressive regimes are, you know, the people in those places want to be in solidarity with people around the world, including in the United States. So I try to maintain my contacts, talk to people, uh, and keep alive the idea that if Jamal had the guts to challenge this regime, so should other people. That's Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. David, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition and WBUR's fall fundraiser. You just heard Magnet Chakrabarty there reminding you about everything you get from WBUR every day. And like Magna said, you get that for free because of listeners who give every month. They give monthly so we know we can continue to bring you all the news you expect from us and all the programs you depend on 
all of that knits your community together and makes it stronger. And community is really important right now when so many people are struggling to find ways to stay connected. To keep this service coming to you and your community, our goal this fundraiser is to bring in 2,500 monthly sustainers. We want that to be you. Be part of making WBUR possible. Give our journalism a strong and secure future. Be a responsible and effective member of your community. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Jay Clayton. And, you know, the pandemic has had lasting effects in many ways on many of us, and WBUR has not been immune to that. Many of our uh, business supporters in the community haven't been able to build their support back to what it once was yet. Many listeners haven't been able to give what they once did, understandably, very understandably, but it underscores why it's so important to give what you can if you can. And it's also why we have turned our emphasis increasingly to monthly giving because that automatic support that continues for as long as you can continue it is what will build a strong foundation of financial certainty for WBUR. We'll thank you for your monthly gift with one of our brand new baseball t-shirts. You can check that out at WBUR.org. You can also start your monthly gift there conveniently. The shirt is our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month. Tomorrow it goes back to $20 a month. So save a little, invest a little, support your station that that brings you so much throughout the day. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. All you have to do is turn the knob to 90.9 or go to the WBUR app or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR or maybe read one of our many newsletters. All of that comes to you for free. There is no paywall. I recently talked to our CEO, Margaret Lowe, about why it's so important to keep that service in place for free these days. It's crucial because we now live in a world where only those who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, our friends at the Boston Globe. They all have paywalls, and they must in order to support the quality journalism, but it further divides the haves and have-nots. At the same time, WBUR and NPR will always be free. We are a public service which is why we count on people who can to contribute so we can continue to be a trusted source for anyone and everyone who lives here, whether they can afford to donate or not. And what that really means is that when you're donating, of course, you're, you're you know, helping to cover the cost for a service you depend on, but you're also making it possible for everybody else, whether they can give or not. So if you can give $12 a month and pick up the the T-shirt, that's a great way to support WBUR. If you can give a little bigger gift, maybe $1,000 or maybe $5,000 or $10,000, to Margaret's point about making sure this service remains available to people when so many others have had to be put behind paywalls, that'll go a long way for WBUR and for this entire community. Think about doing that. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut is expressing frustration at Congress's decision not to include additional aid to support Ukraine in that stopgap bill that averted a government shutdown over the weekend. It signals both to Ukraine uh, but also to Europe 
that there is no longer certainty that the United States is going to authorize funding necessary to keep Ukraine in this war. President Biden is urging Congress to negotiate an aid package for Ukraine as soon as possible, saying American assistance cannot be interrupted. Top European diplomats are meeting in Kyiv today to support Ukraine. U.S. Supreme Court opens a new term today with a docket that includes guns, abortion, and social media cases, as NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. The court has before it a slew of social media questions. Can states ban Internet companies from censoring false and misleading content? Can public officials ban constituents from their private social media accounts? And is it unconstitutional for government officials to communicate with internet companies in an effort to get false and misleading information flagged or removed? All of these questions are already on the docket or pending consideration, in addition to the usual diet of guns, abortion, voting rights, and limits on government regulation. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Lexington native who went to Brandeis and Boston University is one of the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Drew Weissman was announced as winner this morning. Weissman and Kathleen Carrico will share the prize for their work that helped develop the COVID vaccine. Massachusetts Senate President Karen Spilka is joining other elected leaders calling for federal assistance to help newly arriving migrants. Governor Healy declared a state of emergency due to the migrant crisis this summer. Speaking to NBC10 this weekend, Spilka says Congress can provide money and work permits. Most of these adults want to work, but they're not allowed under the federal work permit system. But they could be helping the sectors where there is a gap in workers and help uh, provide the workers for Massachusetts. Governor Healy is proposing a $250 million appropriation to expand assistance for newly arrived migrants. We'll have more on the money being spent to help those migrants coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. The McMullen Museum of Art at Boston College will unveil 30 new acquisitions to the public today. As WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports, this is one of the largest donations in the college's history. In 2021, the McMullen Museum received 27 paintings and three works on paper from the collection of Peter and Carolyn Lynch. The gift includes paintings by Winslow Homer, Mary Cassatt, and John Singer Sargent. Director Nancy Netzer says visitors can now view them alongside the rest of the museum's permanent collection. It's a cohesive gift that enhances the American collection that we have been building really for the last 30 years. This collection will be permanently on display at the McMullen. The museum is free and open to the public. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Patriots were crushed by the Cowboys yesterday in Dallas. The final was 38-3. to The Pats will be back home on Sunday to play the New Orleans Saints. The Red Sox regular season ended yesterday with a 6-1 to win over the Orioles in Baltimore. And the Celtics have picked up guard Drew Holiday from the Trailblazers. In exchange, the Seas sent Malcolm Brogdon, Robert Williams, and two future first-round draft picks to Portland. 
Clear skies and highs in the low 70s today. A few clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 55. Warmer tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. It'll be sunny again. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. You're with WBOR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Anime Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Two scientists whose basic research played a crucial role in the development of the COVID-19 vaccines this morning were named the winners of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. So Rob, tell us who these award-winning scientists are. Their names are Catalin Carico and Drew Weissman. Carico is a biochemist who was born in Hungary. Weissman is an American immunologist. They met and collaborated at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and produced what ended up being groundbreaking research that eventually led to the development of the two most important COVID-19 vaccines. Here's Thomas Perlman from the Nobel Assembly announcing the prize this morning at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. The Nobel Assembly at Karolinska Institute has today decided to award the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to Katalin Carico and Drew Weissman for their discoveries concerning nucleoside base modifications that enabled the development of effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. That research that he was talking about there. Tell us more about that research. Sure. mRNA is a type of genetic information. And working together, the pair figured out how to modify mRNA so it could be used to stimulate the immune system to fight off invaders like, you know, viruses. And despite skepticism from other scientists, Carrico and Weissman hung in there and published what turned out to be a seminal research paper in 2005 explaining how to do this. And when the pandemic erupted, the drug companies Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna used mRNA technology to develop the COVID vaccines in record time. Here's Ricard Sandberg, a Nobel Committee member at today's announcement. mRNA vaccines, together with other COVID-19 vaccines, have been administered over 13 billion times. Together, they have saved millions of lives, prevented severe COVID-19, reduced the overall disease burden, and enabled societies to open up again. And spurred interest in using mRNA technology to fight off many other diseases, from the flu to possibly even cancer. The thing is, though, COVID vaccines have also turned out to be controversial. Did the Nobel Committee address that? Yes, the Nobel Committee members said there is overwhelming evidence the mRNA vaccines are very safe and highly effective, even possibly reducing the risk for long COVID, and hoped the award might help overcome some of the skepticism and hesitancy that has plagued efforts to get more people, you know, to get vaccinated against COVID and save even more lives. Those two scientists, what's their reaction? You know, according to the Nobel Committee, they're both thrilled. Carrico, in particular, had overcome big challenges in her career. Here's uh, Thomas Perlman again. Catalin Carrico explained that 
she was so overwhelmed and also put it in context with her situation as a scientist for many years. Ten years ago, she told me that she was terminated from her current position and had to move to Germany for another position without her family and so forth. So it's been, it's been a dramatic change in her circumstances. You know, Carico is only the 13th woman out of 227 people to win a Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. NPR's Rob Stein. Thanks, Rob. You bet, A. Now to a changing of the guard at the Pentagon. Over the weekend at midnight on Saturday, General Mark Milley stepped down as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the top military advisor to the president. He gave his last interview as chairman to our colleague, All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly, and she's here now to tell us more about it. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. So General Milley is regarded as one of the most influential and most loquacious chairman mm-hmm. of the Joint Chiefs in recent history, and you caught up with him on his last day at the Pentagon. We did. We, we in fact, spoke to him just an hour or so before he was clapped out of the Pentagon here. I will let you listen to just a little taste of that as we talk. So this is the traditional send-off ceremony. You can hear their service members mm-hmm. and staff. They're lined up. They shake hands. They salute. And then... As you mentioned, midnight Saturday, the baton officially passed to CQ Brown. This is the Air Force general who has been confirmed by the Senate. He is now officially the nation's most senior military officer. Now, of course, you will have asked Millie about Ukraine. Take Mm -hmm. us to that part of your conversation with Millie. What's his take on how the war is going? Well, so I love... Layla, when each interview we do it, NPR informs the next. And as you know, your show, Morning Edition, just talked to Ukraine's President Zelensky when he was in New York. And he said something interesting. So that's where I began my conversation with General Milley. I wanted to play for Milley the question to Zelensky, where we've entered the possibility that maybe the hardest part of this war in Ukraine still lies ahead. Zelensky, you may recall, he disagreed. Here he is. I believe that the most difficult part of this war is already in the past. We can see that whenever we start pressing on the Russians, the Russians are starting to retreat. And now we are having the initiative on the battlefield. General Milley, what do you think? The most difficult part of this war is behind us, Zelensky says. First of all, I would say that the Ukrainians do have the strategic initiative. So let's roll the clock back a little bit back to 24 February when the Russians attacked. Essentially, by the end of March, maybe the beginning of April, the Russian offensive had been defeated and the Ukrainians held. But the Russian offensive operation, where the Russians had the strategic initiative, they were in the attack, that attack failed. They failed to take Kyiv, they failed to topple the Zelensky government, they failed to reach the Dnieper River and so on. But, yeah. but to that, yeah. the question I asked whether the hardest part is, is in the past, do you agree? Well, that's, so I think the hardest part was right there, actually. I think the most difficult challenge to the Ukrainians was right at that beginning, uh-huh. because that is when the Russians were the most prepared. They had the stockpiles of ammunition, et cetera. And it came essentially with a significant amount of air power, missile attack, and so on and so forth. Although you uh, have so said I, neither side can win, that victory may not be achievable through military means. But yeah, where, but you, where asked does me about the, you asked me the difficulty part of it. So I agree that the most difficult part of this war for the Ukrainians was probably the very beginning when the Russians had the strategic initiative. 
And uh, to the other part of my question, the where does this leave us? He said, look, Ukraine's defined what winning looks like. How you get there remains very much an open question. Can you share a quick preview of the rest of your interview, Mary Louise? Sure. Uh, we also asked about another war. We pressed him on the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, and we pressed him on his efforts to try to keep the military out of politics towards the end of Trump's presidency. Um, we had asked a number of veterans to send questions, things they wanted to hear the general asked, and that resulted in some pretty interesting answers from the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs, as you will hear. Yeah, looking forward to hearing the rest of your conversation with General Milley later today. Our colleague, Mary Louise Kelly. Mary Louise, thank you. You are welcome. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Open House Wednesday for careers in school psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available. WilliamJames.edu. Sunny and low 70s today. Clear skies and mid-50s tonight. Low 80s tomorrow and sunny again. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Truth, independence, fairness, transparency, respect, excellence. NPR. Donate. Thanks. You're listening to the Fall Fundraiser on Morning Edition on WBUR, and there is a triple match in effect until 9. That means members of our Murrow Society have stepped up to say that whatever you give, whether that's $10 a month or $100 a month, they will match it three times over. Whatever you give, multiply it by three and add it to your impact because that's what you'll provide for WBUR when you give, but only for the next roughly 15 minutes. This fundraiser, we're asking 2,500 of you to join us as monthly contributors. Be our partner in independent journalism and take pride in de- delivering this service to your community. Call one 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy, and here in the studio with me is Jay Clayton. And I love, Rupa, uh, one of the things that Mary Louise Kelly said in that conversation we just heard with Leila Fadel talking about uh, General General Milley, and she said that every interview we do on NPR informs the next one. When you think about that, that's really how we foster understanding and we strengthen our community by advancing these stories so that you understand more. And that takes listener support and increasingly monthly support because that is the key, that is the path to a secure future for WBUR, a secure financial future. So get in on this triple match. It's on the table for only about 15 minutes. And it means that if you give, say, $12 a month, it becomes $36 a month for WBUR for an entire year. If you give $50 a month, that becomes $150 a month for WBUR, again, for an entire year. This is big impact that you can have just by taking a couple of minutes right now and deciding, you know, what can you give? What can you commit to giving WBUR on an ongoing automatic basis each month to help fuel this journalism? 
Call 1-800-909-9287 to start your monthly gift. 1-800-909-9287. Or you can start your monthly gift or even add a little bit to your monthly gift if you've already got one. You can do that at wbur.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes Public Radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. This is the fairest system, as Ira Glass says, because you are in charge. You decide how much to give. We're only asking for whatever amount is right for you. Even small amounts have a big impact on WBUR, especially now when we have a triple match in effect. That means you can triple your impact for WBUR for a year just by calling or going to WBUR.org right now. The number is 1-800-909-9287. We need you to act fast because this match is over at nine. Giving monthly matters because it gives WBUR sustained, reliable support we know we can depend on. And when you give, you can be proud of what you hear every day. There's a lot to be proud of. We hold powerful people to account. We shine a light where there is none. We provide a platform to people who don't have one. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and get in on this match. Yeah, a recent investigation on the Massachusetts housing crisis, good example of the positive impact that the reporting has here at WBUR that you're being asked to support this morning so we can do more of it for you. Your monthly gift will be tripled for a year if you start that monthly gift by 9 o'clock this morning, just about 11 minutes to get in on that. And if you'd like to take away our WBUR baseball t-shirt, that's our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month, and we will turn that $12 a month into more and more journalism for you. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. The website is WBUR.org. The triple match is on until 9 o'clock, so take advantage of it. And thank you. WBUR supporters include Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The number of households in Massachusetts' family shelter system has risen dramatically this year. So has the price tag. This summer, lawmakers allocated a record amount of money to the state-funded system. Now Governor Maura Healey is asking for more. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel joins me now to walk us through the numbers. Good morning. Hi. So let's start with the big picture. How much does Massachusetts spend on family shelters? For the past decade or so, taxpayers have spent between $100 million and $200 million a year on the program. This year, lawmakers allocated well over $300 million, which is an all-time high. And with the supplemental budget Healy's proposing, it would be more than $500 million. Now, 
I should be clear, this spending is required by state law. It's a unique measure known as the right to shelter law, and it means that qualifying families are guaranteed shelter. The issue here is more and more families are qualifying, so costs are growing. In August alone, the state spent roughly $45 million on the shelter system. That sounds like a lot of money. Is it a big part of the state budget? Well, the total state budget is around $55 billion. So shelters are just a fraction of that. For reference, um, a big part of state spending, about $22 billion, goes towards MassHealth, which is the state health insurance program for folks below a certain income level and people with disabilities. Right now, the state is able to fund the shelter system. Here is Doug Howgate of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, which is a business-backed organization. I think the state continues to be in a relatively strong fiscal condition. And so the challenge right now isn't that, oh, because we're going to pay for this for another month, we're not going to continue to implement Program X, or we're going to take money from the rainy day fund, or we're going to raise people's taxes. Like, that's not where we're at here. If costs continue to grow, Howgate and others think the state should be getting help from the federal government. That's because about half the people in the family shelter system are new arrivals here. And that is obviously a national immigration issue. Okay, let's focus on that. Is new immigration what's driving the increase in our shelter system? So the number of families in its shelters has more than doubled this year to well over 20,000 parents and children. That's a record, and in large part, it is because of new migrants. But remember, they have all met the pretty strict eligibility requirements of shelter. Another big issue driving up the cost is the length of stay in shelter. Kelly Turley of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless noticed this in the state's most recent report on the shelter program, which is from last year. The average number of days at that point was 429 days, but the maximum number of days was 3,097. And I remember just like seeing that and just like wanting to cry because that is like eight and a half years. Some experts expect the average length of stay to increase if new arrivals don't get work permits from the federal government. And of course, Massachusetts has a long time housing crunch, so that definitely contributes. As the shelter population grows, do we see economies of scale? In other words, does it get cheaper per household? This is key, and unfortunately, the answer is no. The cost per family has grown as the system expands. That's because the state has run out of shelter units and shelter providers. So it took a few weeks, but the state actually gave us numbers on this. So here's what we know. On average, the traditional shelter unit costs $165 per family per night. But when the state places families in overflow hotels and motels, that number grows a bit to 185. But the number really balloons if families are placed in unstaffed hotel and motel sites. There, the cost is $330 per night per family on average. And that is more than $9,000 per family for a month. And remember, these are not five-star hotels. I've been to plenty of them, and they are generally motels in somewhat hard-to-get-to spots. And right now, we have about a 1,000 households in these 
unstaffed hotels and motels. And is all of the money we're paying for that for housing? Much of it is, but some goes toward food and basic supplies like diapers. Also, some money in the shelter system goes toward services. Think caseworkers, transportation, translation. And then outside the shelter system, there's other state spending for this group, whether that is medical and legal services or the family welcome centers, which were opened up to help new immigrants. Plus, of course, there is spending to help schools enroll unhoused students, and there's spending at the city and the town level. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel, thank you so much for this important reporting. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, and you're with our fall fundraiser. We have a triple match on the table, but only until 9, so you only have five minutes. We need you to act fast. Some generous listeners gave WBUR their money to triple match your monthly contribution. That means you triple your monthly support to give WBUR the resources we need to keep bringing you Morning Edition. With the triple match, your $10 a month contribution makes it worth $30 a month for WBUR. For year. Give $15 a month and the triple match will turn it into $45 a month. Give $100 a month and it becomes $300 a month for WBUR. Get in on it at WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. You can also get in on the match when you call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Jay Clayton. And you know, if you're new to Boston, perhaps new to WBUR, welcome. Thank Thank you for for finding us and for joining us this morning. And we want you to know that the largest share of funding for Morning Edition, for everything that you get from WBUR, that source of funding is listener support. And that's why these monthly gifts are so important, because they help WBUR bring you the journalism that you're counting on right now, and they will help us plan a stronger, more secure future, knowing that we've got the funding that it's going to take to plan and bring you the kind of coverage that you need and that you deserve. So help us out with the monthly gift during this match. It's on the table for just a couple of more minutes until 9 o'clock this morning. It triples your monthly gift from $10 a month to $30, from $20 a month to $60, And not just this month, but every month for an entire year. So that's powerful. Get in on that at WBUR.org. You can start your monthly gift there, WBUR.org, or 1-800-909-9287. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. 
not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I am a super fan of Mary Louise Kelly. Her work is an amazing example of the consistent, factual, high-quality journalism that you get. It's always in context at the highest ethics standards when you hear it on WBUR. Now we're coming back to you to remind you that all of this, all of that work costs a lot of money, and we need your support to keep our future strong. We need you to act now while your monthly contribution will be tripled, because again, there is a triple match that's on the table, but only for the next two minutes. That means you can triple your impact on WBUR, which means everything to us, because as Jay told you, we depend on you for our largest share of support. So be part of what we do by contributing whatever feels right to you. Another reminder, this fundraiser, we're trying to bring on 2,500 new monthly subscribers. And again, it doesn't have to be much. A small monthly gift will have a big and meaningful impact. It means we'll be able to continue to bring you the important journalism you rely on to be there every morning. But act now when you can have as the most potential impact you could possibly have. Your contribution when you act in the next minute will be tripled. So help us make progress toward this goal this morning. Call one 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. Just think about for a second all the people that you do rely on here on WBUR. Rupa, you mentioned Mary Louise Kelly. Uh, She's joined by Elsa Chang and Ari Shapiro in the afternoon. Wana Summers, too, on All Things Considered. Morning Edition, Steve Inskeep, Leila Fadel, Michelle Martin, and of course Rupa Shinoy right here at WBUR. In between, you've got the Here and Now crew, you've got Radio Boston, you've got On Point. So many many programs and people that you depend on to keep you connected, to bring you trusted information. And right now we're asking for your monthly gift to keep it all going and to get that gift tripled. If you give to WBUR, if you start that monthly gift, well, you've got to do it in the next minute or so to get in on this match because it's ending in a minute or so. So go to WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org to start your monthly gift and get it tripled. You can also do it on the phone at 1-800-909-9287. Match is ending in a few seconds, so get in on it now, and thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.